Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the life and the ministry of the Reverend Billy Graham. Thank you for how you used him to touch so many people here and so many others around the world. We pray for his family this morning and ask that in the midst of the grief that you would give them great comfort, great peace. Thank you for the hope that they have. This isn't the end. Uh, He's with you, and there will be a great reunion one day. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we turn to your word now, you would give us ears to hear. We'd hear you calling us to come to you, even in this. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified in you alone, in your holy name. Amen. Uh, A little over a year ago, I read a book uh, called Dead Wake. It's uh, one of the many books on the uh, tragedy of the RMS Lusitania, one of the worst uh, tragedies in history. Uh, It was in 1915, May 7th, during a war that the Lusitania was struck by, I believe it was German U-Boat 20, um, sunk within 15 minutes. And basically almost 1,200 of the 1,900 passengers on board died. Uh, One of the survivors was a man by the name of Charles Laureate. And he talks about the moment from the Lusitania had taken its first torpedo and immediately the ship starts keeling, people are running around crazy. And he said he was standing there, got his life jacket on, and knew, okay, I have to wait to the right moment to get into the water. But he said in those 15 minutes, he was trying to help people because most people on board didn't know how to use their life jacket. Uh, He said people were running around, like one man had his head through one of the armholes and his arm through the other one. Most people, tragically, had them on upside down. And he was trying to help people, but in the midst of the panic and confusion, most people ran because they thought he was trying to take their life jacket from them rather than helping them. And he was talking about how most of the passengers didn't do the simple thing of preparing for a crisis. And that's the tragedy of it. They knew we are sailing through waters that are dangerous. There's a war underway, and yet there was no preparation for it. And Laureate wrote afterwards, he said, the dead and the drowning were dotting the sea like seagulls. Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put their life jackets on the wrong way up. So their heads were pushed under the water. It didn't have to be that way. If people had taken some time to prepare or consider or think. And the reason I use that illustration is because in our passage today in Mark 14, there's a war going on, there's a battle, there's a crisis. It's from beginning to end. And I'm not referring to how some people have jokingly talked about the battle that Peter engaged in, which is known as the shortest sword fight in history, where he grabbed a sword, struck the high servant's ear, cutting it off. He obviously swung like a fisherman, not like a soldier. And people said, 
you know, there probably, had Jesus not healed Malchus's ear that day, there may have been four crucifixions, not just three, because Peter probably would have been quickly tried and also crucified in that moment. You see, the disciples, they didn't realize they were in the midst of a war. They didn't prepare. And when a moment of crisis hit, they're undone. And there's a lot taking place in our passage this morning. For one, it's a long passage, and there are many facets to the jewel that you can turn and examine and get a lot out of. But what I want to do in our time this morning is look at the central theme of the passages that Jen read just a moment ago, because what we find is that the application is you and I today, even right now, we're in a spiritual war. There's a battle going on all around us. It's happening every day of our lives. And the sad fact of the matter is most Christians go through life like the people of the Lusitania, like the disciples in this passage, and they're oblivious to it, they're unaware, and they're radically unprepared. It doesn't have to be that way. And the crux of this passage in Mark 14 is Mark is trying to get us to see there's a radical difference between Jesus, who by all accounts is you know, the apparent victim, but at the end, what you see is that the apparent victim is in complete control of the situation. He is no victim. It's happening because he is following the plan. And yet the disciples, they're running around crazy, out of control completely. And so Mark is painting, and you can't, and what I love about what Mark does here, and we won't be able to explore this in depth, but you, you, Mark doesn't allow us to say, well, obviously, Jesus is God. That's why he handled it that way. Mark doesn't let it be that simple, because what Mark does in our passage this morning, he shows the full humanity of Jesus on display. And we're going to look at that in part, but as we go through this, Mark wants us to see there's a great contrast between Jesus and the disciples, and we are forced to ask, what was the difference? And how does that apply to us? So let's look at this and what separated them this morning. We begin by seeing that Jesus gives a warning and a promise here. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. Fall away is a very strong word. You're going to scatter I will strike the sheep, and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So the warning is, my father, that's the I, he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 13 here, it's verses 7 to 9. God the Father is going to strike the son, the shepherd, and the sheep, the disciples, are going to scatter. When Jesus says you're going to fall away, uh, this is the language that Jesus has already used the disciple, with the disciples before. If you remember the story of the sower of the seed and the four different types of soil, there was one soil called the rocky soil. And the seed that was scattered there, it grew up really fast. And then what happened? The sun came and it fell away. It's the same exact word. It's, it's talking about a person who has zeal but not depth. And Jesus says, you guys are about to be living testimony of seed on rocky soil. Zeal, you're going to fall away. 
because my father's going to strike me and you guys are going to scatter. Peter does not like this at all. And so, let me go back, because what Jesus does, he doesn't leave them with just the negative. He also gives them this promise, which is this, but I, after I have risen. This is the third time now in Mark's gospel, Jesus has predicted the resurrection. He says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That doesn't mean Jesus is going to engage in a foot race and beat them into Galilee after the resurrection. What it is, it's this beautiful promise of, after I have risen, I am going to lead you like a shepherd as I have these past three years. I will go ahead of you, meaning we will be reunited. I, the shepherd, will regather you, my sheep, and I will lead you once again. You will not be left alone. It's a beautiful promise associated with this. Peter doesn't like it, even with the promise. He says, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this is a very strong amen, amen, Peter. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. If you've been with us through the series, you'll remember that Mark, we believe, got his source material directly from Peter, that he went and got Peter's firsthand account of these things. And one of the things, this is just one of those little hints of why that's true, the repetition of there's two rooster crows. It's only in Mark's gospel, and it's probably because this so stuck in Peter's mind. This is, this is going to become Peter's most embarrassing moment ever of thumping his chest. Lord, I know, these guys are kind of losers. Not me. I know, they, they, they might fall away, not I. And the other, you know, Jesus says, no, Peter, you're going to die me three times. And then look at this. Peter says, no, no, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then it says, And all the disciples said the same thing. All of them. What's going on? Well, they are declaring their self-sufficiency. You see, the disciples' problem here, Peter is the spokesman, but they all agree, is they trust way too much in themselves and in their own ability in this. Peter's self-righteous. Even if all these guys do, not I, Lord. I'm your man. I got this, Jesus. And you know what? We can do the exact same thing in so many ways. We're in the middle of a war, a spiritual war going on right now. And you know what we do? I got it, Lord. You've given me great wisdom. You've given me resources. You've equipped. I got this. If I really get stuck, I'll call out to you for help. It's presumptuous. Peter's boastful. And while we may not say it the exact same way that he does, or we may not say literally, Lord, I got this, I'm good, how often do we simply live that way? We just kind of go through life. I got it, Lord. I'm good. And I think one of the things this is forcing us to ask is how do we seek to live life in our own power. So many Christians do this. We just kind of go along. And if we get really stuck or a crisis really happens, okay, then we might realize it doesn't have to be that way. 
Peter, in just a couple hours, is about to face something so overwhelming to him, and it's all going to come true. Three denials, scattering like the wind. Jesus shows us a better way than thumping chest, relying in self, saying, I got this. We read, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him, Abba, Father. He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And what we see in Mark's gospel is that it's a very simple thing. Prayer is what separates Jesus from his disciples. Prayer makes all the difference in the midst of a spiritual war. Jesus is remarkably different. Rather than being self-confident, and wouldn't you think the only begotten Son of God, if anybody had the right to be self-confident, it was Jesus? Jesus doesn't say, I got this. He goes to his heavenly Father in prayer. Rather than relying on his own resources, he seeks his Father. And, and what I want to do in our remaining time is look at the prayer Jesus prays and four words associated with it that we can apply to our own lives. His prayer is very simple. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And you know, we get the sense that Jesus is out there at least an hour, probably a couple of hours. Okay, this isn't all he prayed. I think this is all we got because the disciples kept hitting the snooze button, you know, one too many times as they're going along. And so this is all they remember. What was he saying? What was, well, before I fell asleep, I heard this, you know. So this is what we got. I guarantee you there was more, but I think this is enough for what Mark wants us to know. And the, the four things, the four words, we'll go through them this way. The first one is this, love, taking from Abba, Father. Now, you've probably heard that Abba is a childlike Jewish word meaning daddy, right? Daddy is the, the word of a very young Jewish child referencing Papa. Little child loves his daddy. That's true, but it's not just that. And the reason I point this out to you because you and I come before a God who loves us. Not just like a little child who says, Papa, Daddy, but this is also the word used by the head of a Jewish household who's the heir of the inheritance, who has a long-standing, deep relationship with the Father, Abba. You see, it's the word of a little child, Daddy, but it's also the word of a full-grown male, meaning, Father, I have deep respect for you. I have deep reverence for you. I respect your wisdom. I respect your power. I submit to you, even as the full-grown heir of yours. It's this word which is on the tongues of little children, but on the tongues of grown men. And what it conveys is deep reverence, deep intimacy, and relationship. And that's critical because our prayer life, we are meant to experience the love of Abba Father. You know, Jesus taught His disciples, when you pray, pray this way, our Father 
who art in heaven. This was radical at the time. Jews did not speak this way. And what Jesus is getting across, your Father loves you more than you can imagine. Today, right now, you are loved more deeply than you can guess. You can call out to a heavenly Father who loves you perfectly. And that's what Jesus does. And I think that's important because if you approach God like He's just waiting to whack you with a baseball bat because you're such a screw-up, you're not going to have much of a prayer life. But you, when you remember, I have a little devotional that sometimes, that literally in the middle of it, it says, stop, remind yourself that you're in the loving presence of Heavenly Father. And I need that because sometimes I'm going along and you know what? I, everything changes when I remember I'm in the presence of loving Heavenly Father. Friends, He loves you and He desires to be close to you. You can come to Him that way in prayer. The second word is this, power. Because Jesus says, everything is possible for you. What's not included in that? Nothing. (laughs) You know, isn't it quite foolish of us to kind of go through life thinking, I got this, Lord. I got it. I don't need you when we have access to the one for whom everything is possible, Jesus reminds us there's no limitations here. There is nothing. You approach the one who loves you perfectly and yet has all power. You know, when it comes to the spiritual realm, you know, I'm weak. Just, I mean, come on. During the week, I can't make much happen. I can pitch a fit and a tantrum with the staff here, and yeah, yeah, maybe I'll get them to do something for a couple of minutes, and they'll go do their own thing, whatever. I have no power. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, I got zip. But that's not the case with our Heavenly Father. We are connected to the one for whom everything is possible. Seek Him. Why wouldn't we? Here's the third word, Vulnerability. You know, a little earlier, we read this in the passage. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Have you ever wondered why it seems that some people in history face death much braver than Jesus? Think about that. I mean, we have Christian martyrs. Polycarp, Blandina, Latimer, Ridley, so many others. And you know what? When they were burned at the stake, when they were sawed in half, you know, when they were cut up with swords, when they were fed to the wild bulls and lions in the arena, they faced death bravely with great confidence. What's up with Jesus freaking out? It doesn't even have to be Christians. You know, Greek and Romans, they celebrate how people died bravely. Think about Socrates, who had to drink a cup of hemlock at his death. And we're told by the accounts that Socrates, as he drank the hemlock, he gave one last lecture to his students filled with ironic one-liners that they would all remember. He faced death in the eye bravely, as a proud Stoic should. Why not Jesus? Why is he overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Why is he so freaking out? 
It's not because Jesus is weaker. Mark is showing us Jesus' humanity here, and it all deals with the prayer, take this cup from me. I'm going to say this briefly because we've preached on the cup before at great length, but if you were not here for that, this cup is talked about in other Scripture passages, both Old Testament and New, and it refers to two things. What Jesus was about to drink in the cup, and where did He drink it? He drank it on the cross. It's a cup filled with the sins of all humanity. Think about that for a moment. Think about just your personal sin, your private thoughts that you hope nobody else would ever know about, your worries, your anxieties, your self-righteousness, your pride, your lust, your greed, your willfulness. You're using your resources for your own good rather than for God's glory. We can go on and on with so many things. All of that was in the cup. All of it's in the cup. In the cup is the sin of nations with thousands of genocide throughout the ages. In the cup. There's the whoredom of men and women throughout all the ages. The perversion of mankind is in the cup. Literally, when Jesus drinks the cup on the cross, our sins are laid on Him. He became sin who knew no sin is what the Word tells us. So think about your worst sin. Whatever the worst thing you can imagine, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin because He drank the cup filled with the sin of people. You start to see why it scared Him to death? Because He looked into the cup and He sees what He's about to drink. But it's not just the sins of humanity. What's also in the cup, according to Scripture, is the wrath of a fully righteous, holy God. And on the cross, as He drank our sin and our sin is placed upon Him, He bore the wrath of Heavenly Father who strikes the shepherd. Jesus looks into the cup. And get this, He knew it was coming. This plan of the cross, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Put it together before the foundation of the world. He knew it was coming. And yet in this moment, he starts to look into it. And he is overwhelmed. And in a moment of great vulnerability, he's going to Father who loves him, who has all power, and he says, Is there any other way? Please, take this cup from me. Father, everything's possible to you. Please. He's undone. He's pouring out his heart. Second Corinthians says this, it's the beauty of the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he drank that cup down, all of your sin, 
so that you might have His perfect righteousness laid on you. That's what the cross is all about. Paul says it this way in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Friends, gazing into the cup, Jesus saw all hell before Him and He staggered. And a point why I spend extra time on this, I hear so many Christians sometimes say, I feel guilty if I'm honest with God. If I'm mad with Him, if I tell Him my fears, if, if, you know, if, I'm, if I'm truly honest, because that means I have to be really vulnerable with Him, I feel guilty. Jesus models full vulnerability before His heavenly Father. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? I know I was part of the plan. I'm scared to death. You don't need to feel guilty sharing your heart with the Lord. The psalmists do it over and over and over again. Pray your heart. Pray your desires. And then this last part is very important, though. Because God will answer our prayers in all kinds of ways. We love it when we get a yes. It's like, yes. And anytime you ask for forgiveness, there's always a yes. There's guaranteed yeses in that. Know that. There's no sin you've ever committed that's far beyond His grace. Repent of it, you'll get a yes. Sometimes we get a wait. I've got something I want to show you later. And sometimes we get a no. And that's what Jesus got. Jesus pours his heart out to Father, and the Father says, no, son. And here's how Jesus responds. Not what I will, but what you will. To me, this is one of the most beautiful and intimate passages in Scripture. As Jesus, in submission to his heavenly Father, Father, not what I want, what you want. Jesus got an answer to his prayer request. No, son, because this is the way. And Jesus says, I understand, I accept, and I trust you, Father. You see, surrender is so important. This is what Jesus taught us to pray, remember? Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, not your will, his will. When we find our alignment with God's will is not in alignment, you know who's wrong? We are. And prayer is one of the avenues by which we find God's alignment. You know what faith is? It's placing your life, all of it, into God's hands, knowing that He can take all the broken and scattered pieces and turn them into something beautiful. And the cross is full testimony that He can do that. 
taking something chaotic and broken and scattered and turning it into something beautiful and glorious. He can do that in your life. So I encourage you as you pray, remember these four words, love, power, vulnerability, and surrender. And what Mark is saying to us is that prayer made all the difference because what we see through the rest of this passage, Jesus' distress is overcome through this intense prayer and submission. And we don't have time to walk through it, but if you keep reading, three times Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John. And I think it's quite significant that he called these three to pray with him, because these three all said, we're your men, Jesus. Peter, in this passage, but earlier, if you go back to Mark 10, James and John said, yeah, Lord, we can drink that same cup that you drink. We got it, Jesus. Just let us sit at your right and left when you come in power. And Jesus is like, do you really think you can drink the cup? So he calls in the three. They are his closest, but they're also the three who made the biggest boast. And three times they fall asleep on him as he's praying. He commands them, watch and pray. This isn't just a little suggestion. He's commanding them, guys, I need you in this moment. Watch, stay alert, and pray. And what do they do? They go to sleep three times. And it's not coincidental that Peter falls asleep three times and is about to deny Jesus three times. What you see is that Jesus finds peace, and yet when he's arrested, you know, Judas betrays him. What do the disciples do? They all freak out. Peter draws the sword. That fails miserably. They scatter in the woods of Gethsemane among the olive trees. And we get this weird ending to this. You know, it's not just, it's like, you know, in the movies it would be called a gratuitous nude scene. But, you know, here we get this last verse of this passage of Scripture. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following. They seized him. He fled naked. What is Mark telling us? One, I think it's John Mark. If you didn't know this, where they celebrated the Passover was probably John Mark's father's house. Jesus and his disciples went out to pray following the Passover. John Mark was in bed. Most likely, Judas and the soldiers showed up at the house first. And John Mark has on his linen garment. He's running out. I've got to find the master. I've got to tell him. So this is John Mark. And he runs away naked. And what it symbolizes is this. Jesus is left utterly alone. This shows the totality of the desertion by all those who love and follow Jesus. No one's around. Even this young, strong man flees naked into the woods. He's completely abandoned. So much for their boastful protest. So let me ask you this as we wrap up. What about you? You think you got it in life? You a self-made woman? Are you a man who makes things happen? When it comes to the spiritual realm, and eh, not so much. And you know where it starts, my friends? It starts with one really big surrender. The Reverend Billy Graham was called home. He died this week. Every single person in this room, young and old, is going to die one day if Jesus doesn't come back first. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for what lies after? The bad news of Scripture is we all sin, 
We all fall short of God's glory, and we all deserve death. And we cannot save ourselves. But thanks be to God for the cross of Jesus Christ, because He has done what we could never do. So my friends, if you have never engaged in what I will call the big surrender, which is this, Lord, I need you desperately. I trust you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I trust you through death that you will rise me again just as you rose and that I will live with you forever. That is giving your life to him, trusting in him. But it doesn't just happen one time years ago. Because maybe you're here today and you've been a Christian for 50 plus years. You know what every single day of the Christian life is? It's another day of surrendering, not my will, but your will be done. Tomorrow, not my will, but your will be done. How are you seeking to live life in your own power? You know, we won't go through this Gethsemane that Jesus and the disciples went through, but all of us will face personal Gethsemanes in life. There will be times of crisis and tragedy, and Jesus says you don't have to be unprepared. Living in perpetual seeking of Him, dependent prayer, surrender, is what will see you through. And my friends know this. Sometimes when we pray, we are through prayer and surrender, we're delivered from our circumstances, and God does something amazing. And that's wonderful. But more often, when we depend on Him and we pray and we surrender, you know what happens? He delivers us through the circumstances. And that's exactly what Heavenly Father did with Jesus. He delivered Him through death into resurrection. So where are you holding on to sin? Where are you seeking your own agenda or glory? Where are you demanding your own rights? Where are you clinging to idols of lust, power, comfort, control, complacency? Jesus invites all of us to let go of those things today. You see, the good news of Jesus' resurrection is it not only defeats the power of sin and death, His work also overcomes human failure. You and I, here's how it looks in my life. I surrender something to Jesus, and when I'm really good, I'll go three weeks, and when I'm not so good, I'll go three minutes, and I'm grabbing it back from Him. Lord, I give you this sense of whatever in my life. No, 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 I want it back. And we do that over and over, and it's like, how screwed up am I? But the cross reminds us it's not about our obedience, it's about His obedience. And His grace helps us become more obedient as we go. We'll, you'll mess up today. You'll mess up tomorrow, and so will I. But there's grace abundant. Depend on Him and seek Him. You know, since we're honoring the Reverend Graham this week, let me end with a couple of illustrations from him. It was in 1982. He was going on the Today Show, and they had him on all the time. But the producer's assistant went to Billy Graham's assistant and said, hey, we've got this room reserved here so that the Reverend Graham can spend some time in prayer before the interview. And Billy's assistant said, he's not going to need it. Thanks very much. And the Today Show producer 
uh, Billy Graham's assistant could see the gears turning and like, this great Christian man isn't going to take time to pray before an interview? That's interesting. And this was the response of Billy Graham's assistant. He said, no, no, no. The reason Mr. Graham is not going to need the room today is that he started praying this morning when he got up. He's prayed all through breakfast. He prayed in the car the entire way over here. He's praying right now, and I guarantee you he will be praying all the way through the interview itself, so he's not going to need the little room. You see, Billy Graham knew how dependent he was on prayer. He was asked, what are the three most important things for a revival? And his answer, without missing a beat, was, oh, the three most important things for revival? Prayer, prayer, and prayer. Let me share some quotes with you from him. In the morning, prayer is the key that opens us to the treasures of God's mercies and blessings. In the evening, it is the key that shuts us up under his protection and safeguard. True prayer is a way of life, not just for use in case of emergency. Make it a habit, and when the need arises, you will be in practice. You have to wonder if he was reading our passage today. Have you ever said, well, all we can do now is pray? When we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. He wrote, we are to pray in times of adversity lest we become faithless and unbelieving. We are to pray in times of prosperity lest we become boastful and proud. We are to pray in times of danger lest we become fearful and doubting. We are to pray in times of security lest we become self sufficient. This should be the motto of every follower of Jesus Christ. No matter how dark and hopeless a situation might seem, never stop praying. May that be true of every single one of us, because prayer is a source of power that will get you through the war. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for this passage that we've only scratched the surface of, Thank you that we can approach you in prayer, knowing that you love us, knowing that all power is yours, knowing we can pour our hearts out before you, and trusting you completely in surrender. Lord, show us your power made perfect to us. Lord Jesus, as we give you our tithes and our offerings now, and we sing this song, we ask that even in this moment, the singing of this song would be an act of praise and a response of prayer to you, our King. In your name we pray. Amen.